0: Uh, Grab your Bibles. If you got one, go ahead and find 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, If you are new, my name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here. We've been in a series uh, here in the book of 2 Corinthians, and we're headed toward the conclusion of this book. This book, uh, we've had Paul talking about his ministry in chapters 1 through 7. In chapters 8 and 9, Paul is talking about uh, money. And in these last few chapters, chapters 10 through 13, Paul is speaking not to the repentant majority in the church, the church that has turned and uh, apologized and repented and practiced church discipline on somebody who went toe-to-toe with the Apostle Paul when he was present with them, but Paul is speaking to an unrepentant minority led by a group of individuals who he'll call in the next couple weeks false apostles. He'll call them... um, Apostles that masquerade as angels of light. So Paul is uh, dealing with this unrepentant minority. And what we said last week is that Paul's tone now completely changes throughout chapters 10 through 13 as he deals with this recalcitrant group within the church. And uh, we spent last week looking at the beginning part of this chapter in verses 1 through 6, and we saw that Paul gave us the rules of engagement. He said that there's a battle out there. There is a spiritual war happening for the minds and hearts of people in the church and in the culture. And what Paul did as he began addressing this um, unrepentant minority is talk to us about the rules of engagement. How do we fight? How do we fight well? What are the tools of our warfare? And what does it look like for us to find victory in spiritual warfare? Well, that's where Paul began and uh, what he's going to do all throughout 2nd Corinthians there is a a conflict over Paul's qualifications to be the apostle at Corinth and the false teachers who come in don't just bring a false gospel with uh, twisted doctrine what they do is uh, try to sever the relationship between the church and the apostle And what they do is they call his qualifications into question. So if last week was spiritual combat, what Paul is going to do as he moves into the defense of his uh, apostleship is deal with two big ideas. The first one he's going to deal with is comparison. You ever struggle with comparing yourself to other people? Well, Paul has to deal with human comparison. Imagine that you are an apostle just for a minute, and somebody comes to you, and you make the claim that you are an apostle of Jesus Christ, and somebody says, nuh-uh, no, you're not. And if you're a valid apostle of Jesus Christ called on the Damascus Road, how are you going to defend yourself? What are you going to appeal to? What is going to be the ground of your ability to justify the fact that you indeed are an apostle of Jesus Christ? Anybody serving the military in here? You got a military background? Just raise your hand just for a second. You ever heard of the term, you guys will know this. If you've heard of the term stolen valor, you know what that is? Stolen valor is the fraudulent claim to have served in the armed forces and wearing medals that are evidence of your uh, deeds of victory. And that there's, there are people out there who will take these medals and wear them having never participated in the battle. And if you are caught impersonating someone who has the right to wear those medals, it is a federally charged offense that you would spend time in jail. Do you know that? Well, what is it for Paul? How is Paul going to defend his reputation defend his apostleship so the first one is comparison and he'll face these false apostles dealing with human comparison but the second one really is the ground of what Paul is going to say that will give his apostleship validity what he will say is that his commendation does not come from men but his commendation comes from the Lord How do we know if you've committed an act of stolen valor? There's actually a website that you can go to that gives you a list of all the military awards that have been given to individuals. We are looking to that list to ensure that you are who you say you are. Well, how is Paul going to do it? How is Paul going to defend his apostleship? How is he going to actually receive commendation as being an apostle of Jesus Christ? That's what this text is about. You with me so far? Well, let's pray. And ask God for his grace here. Father in heaven, for these few minutes as we look into your word, we pause and ask for your grace. We pause and we ask that we would be a church that fights the spiritual war in our lives and in our midst well. We pray that the gospel message of Jesus Christ, to him crucified, dead, and raised, and ascended to the right hand of God the Father would be the message that captivates our attention and our affection here this morning. Father, would we live in light of the gospel message that has saved us, that has made us a new people in this time and place? And would you shape us and encourage us, challenge us and exhort us to be the men and women that present to you hearts of wisdom who desire to walk in your ways. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, let's look at this uh, fight for comparison that that Paul has to deal with with these false apostles. You're going to jump right in in verse 7. Y'all there? 2 Corinthians 10, verse 7. If you're there, say okay. Okay, verse verse 7, 2 Corinthians Chapter 10. Look at what is before your eyes. It's Paul's way of saying, Remember how he began last week in verse 1? I, Paul, myself. He says something similar here in that what he's going to say is actually a command. It's Paul's way of saying, Open your eyes, pay attention, look at what is obvious right in front of you. Because Paul is having to mediate his relationship with the Corinthian church by distance. Remember that? Paul is writing a letter. He's not there preaching these truths. He's writing and putting them in the hands of Titus. And as Titus delivers the letter to this church, Paul is appealing to them to pay attention, look with spiritual eyes, open your eyes to the reality of who you are and what has been happening in your midst. Look at what is obvious. Now, you get your first hint. And all throughout 2 Corinthians, Paul will only hint at his uh, detractors. He'll hint at these false apostles and the accusations that are coming back to him through Titus. Here's one of their, at least, accusations. Paul won't grant that they're of the Lord. In fact, he'll say that they're messengers of Satan later on. But Paul is going to take their argument and he's going to examine it so that the church would understand where Paul's apostolic credentials come from. Here's the first one that he says, if anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. So you have false apostles who come in and seek to get a hearing in the church. They seek to sway the church, to listen to their teaching, to follow after them. And Paul won't argue with their ground of commendation that the false apostles say because of course the false apostles will, will come in and say, hey, I'm obviously anointed by Jesus. I obviously have a prophetic gift. I obviously can teach the word really well. I obviously have letters of recommendations from other people and here I am in your midst. Pay attention to me and also give me your money. So Paul says, if anybody's claiming to be Christ's apostle, church, let's just admit that i am too now paul's conversion is is captured at least three different times in the scriptures where paul tells this story and retells this story and talks about his life pre-conversion and post-conversion so if nothing else paul is saying i know jesus and jesus knows me which makes you ask what is the accusation coming from the false apostles well, the accusation coming from the false apostles is that this isn't a real true apostle. Paul isn't somebody you ought to listen to. Paul doesn't have the same credentials that we have, okay? You with me so far? Watch how, he, watch how this works. Verse 8, for even if I boast. Now, that word is going to be mentioned seven different times in our text this morning. It's a repeated idea. Now, boasting for us sounds like a negative thing. You don't want to be somebody who boasts. I get it, right? Boasting sounds arrogant. It sounds prideful. It sounds like you are uh, saying something that is untrue about yourself. But in the context of 2 Corinthians 10, boasting is essential. The question is, where is your boasting coming from? What is the ground and the confidence of the false apostles teaching ministry? What is it? And therefore, what is the ground of Paul's apostleship? What is Paul's boast? What is the foundation of his own ministry? So, we have to deal with boasting. We have to deal with the foundational element of our lives. The ground out of which we speak with confidence. Because the false apostles have one, and Paul has one. So, Paul says, even if I boast a little too much... Of our authority. Now, I want to take out the middle clause just for a minute. The middle clause starts with which and ends with you. You see that in the middle of the sentence? And I want to tie together the end and the beginning of the sentence. The end and the beginning of the sentence work like this Even if I boast a little too much of our authority, I will not be ashamed. Now, if you've been with us through the course of this series, you know that Paul has used the term boasting before in this book. Let me give you a few of them. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul says, Our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience. That we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so towards you. So, if you'll note, Paul's boast in this book up to this point has been primarily an internal thing the sincerity of his conscience. His boast has been with an eye toward the end of time where God will evaluate his ministry and God will evaluate the Corinthian church, where Paul says there's coming a day when the, on the day of the Lord where I will boast in you and you will boast in me. We will boast in what God has done by grace for me to preach and teach the message to you and for you to receive it. Number three, Paul has said in 2 Corinthians 5 that we're not commending ourselves, but giving you a cause to boast about us so that you would be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not what is in the heart. So all the way up to this point, Paul has been talking about his boast, his confidence, his ground of his ministry has come out of authenticity and sincerity and a heartfelt care and concern for the Corinthian church. But now, Paul has to boast in something that is going to be able to dismantle the false boasting of the false apostles. So, Even if I boast a little too much of our authority. Now, Paul's boast has to come from a place not just of sincerity, but it comes from a place of authority. Now, is that important for an apostle to say? That Paul has been given legitimate authority by Jesus Christ himself. That's a pretty broad claim, but a pretty important claim if you are going to be the individual that writes half of the New Testament. Right? So Paul says, I'm not going to boast, even if I boast a little too much of our authority. Now, the question is, where does Paul's authority come from? Well, he says it's given to him by God, but it's given to him by God for a certain purpose. So he's not going to be ashamed of the authority that God has given him. He's not going to shrink back and say, oh, well, I'm not really an apostle. Paul's going to say, I have a real authority and a real authority over this church. But I want you to look at the authority that Paul is given The authority that Paul is given is in direct contrast to the authority of the false apostles that they claim. Look at what the authority that Paul is given does. Even if I boast a little too much of the authority that God gave, the Lord gave, for building you up and for not destroying you. Isn't that interesting? You know what he says? Look it back up in chapter 10, verse uh, 4. Do you see verse 4? For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to what? Destroy strongholds. Okay? What were strongholds? Strongholds were arguments, lofty opinions raised up against the knowledge of Christ. Now, Paul says, the Lord has given me authority. Not, uh, the Lord has given me authority to build you up and not, same word, to destroy you. What's Paul's uh, ambition in ministry? It's not to destroy people, it's to destroy ideas. And the false apostles leverage this criticism and say, look at his severe letter. He doesn't care about you. He wants to humiliate you. And Paul says, whoa, my authority that's been given hasn't been given to tear down. The authority that I've been given has been to build up. Now, I want you to think with me just for a second. Let's use a human real life example. Have you had a leader, a boss, a coach, an authority in your life that was a bad authority? Raise your hand. Now, in the same, keep them up for just for a second, okay? Just look around, okay? We all, how fast can you tell those stories? Man, you can tell those stories super quick. Now, how many of you have had somebody in your life who was a blessing to your life, who was in the position of leader, coach, parent, boss? Look at that. This illustration doesn't work. Good to know. Can you write that down? Don't use this again. See, a lot of times we look at authority as vested in a position. So that because my name says boss on the door, therefore I have authority. And Paul locates the purpose of authority, not in title or not in person, but then the effect of what his leadership, what his apostleship has on a church. So a lot of times we look at leaders as the ones who are able to rebuke, The ones who are able to discipline, the ones who are able to have the hard conversation, the ones who are able to exert their will upon other people, and Paul totally changes it. He says, I have been given authority, imagine this, I have been given the authority of the Lord to build up the church, not destroy it. What if your calling in the leadership spheres of our church was such that you believe that God put you there to build up others? you would have a sense of what it means to be an apostle. You would have an aroma of your leadership where God says, I will invest you with authority so that everybody that comes in contact with your leadership, Paul, is going to be encouraged and built up. Why hasn't Paul pulled the trigger and rebuked this church up to this point? Because he has done everything possible to be able to build up this church he's been lenient he's been patient he's been tender he's experiencing suffering he's been sending his best he's been asking them to open their heart to him why because his goal is to build them up how how short would second corinthians be if you wrote it oh you want to argue and shut me down in public that's fine bye send that to him titus How much Paul has invested in this church. So, God gave him. He gave him this authority. The, the idea of that illustration, incidentally, was that we would have more people with bad bosses than good bosses. That's what I was thinking. As I could give you more stories in my life of bad bosses than I've had good ones. And hopefully you can too. Or maybe you're just so blessed and God has been with you your whole life that you've had so many great uh, leadership experiences. I don't know. That was where that was going. We'll take that out of the recording. That's fine. Verse 9, I don't want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. Isn't that great? Paul says, I'm not trying to scare you. Now, were there some serious things that Paul had to deal with in the Corinthian church? Yeah. You got to rebuke a guy who went toe to toe with Paul. You got to kick him out of the church. Oh, Up, then you got to bring him back in, and you got to ask for money, and you got to make sure that this church doesn't forget the commitments they've made. There are serious things in the life of the church, but Paul doesn't write to scare them. I don't want to be appear to be frightening you with my letters. For they say, here's the accusation that Paul brings back, or I'm sorry, Titus brings back to Paul. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account want to put that on your resume? Sheesh. Great over email, not so great in person. So, Paul, how Paul, how are you going to answer this? Verse 11. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Now, we said this last week. Remember what Paul said? Don't make me come over there. He's saying the same thing here. Do you think I won't say the same thing that I say to you in in the letter? Which shows you an element of Paul's restraint. His desire to win his brother by any means possible, to win the church by any means possible before he arrives and he actually has to do what he said in verse 6, which is... uh, wait until their obedience is complete until the consequences for disobedience fall. You see how patient Paul is as a leader? Doing everything possible he can do to win their heart. So the accusations against Paul are about, there's about four of them that make up the accusations or that make up the false apostles accusation against Paul. Paul. You've got his presence versus his absence, right? Remember how Paul said, I'm gonna come, but then there was the confrontation and Paul says, I'm not gonna come. I'm gonna write a letter instead. There's his communication style. He won't be there face to face, rather he's gonna write a letter. There's his actions. He'll write something in word, will he be the same person in, in, in presence? Will his words and his deeds match up? And finally, his attitude. His boldness and his timidity. And note that the false apostles will jump on any inconsistency. You ever feel like you can't win? That's where Paul is. They're going to critique me at anything that I do. Any decision I make to show restraint, they'll call me weak. To be bold, they'll say I'm trying to terrify them. To be in present, they'll say, he's a weakling, he's not that strong. If I'm away, they'll say I'm two faced. And this is the essence, I mean, I think, of corporate spiritual warfare. What is Paul going to do? Is he going to take their accusations line by line by line by line? How is he going to defend himself? What is he going to do if he can feel like he can win over the unrepentant minority in the church? Because everything that's coming at Paul is accusation, accusation, character assault, criticism over his, the choices that he's made about his ministry methodology with these people. So Paul has responded to their accusations thus far in the first six verses of this let, of this chapter. Remember the accusation last week that they say he walks according to the flesh? The decisions that Paul makes fundamentally come from the flesh, come from self-preservation. They're not faithful. He's just a man who who makes decisions, you know, um, the only term I have is willy-nilly. We use that in my, you know what that means? Just whatever. Whatever feels right, I do it. Whatever feels right, I do it. I don't want to do that, I don't do it. I want to do this, I do it. And then now, at this point here, he's responding to the charge of inconsistency. He's duplicitous. So now Paul is going to respond to the implicit, implicit question. Who says? What's the ground of Paul's authority? What do you think? Do we have any information from the word of God that would allow us to understand what a ministry is that's not evaluated by human terms, but by spiritual terms. Who says what Paul is doing is right? Are we left to determine what the Lord is doing by pragmatic means? Do we just look around and go, big church must be of the Lord. Small church, Lord doesn't like you. Popular platformed ministry, the Lord is with you. Little bitty six followers on YouTube, not a big deal. What do we do? What do you think? Are we left to determine that just by what our eyes see? And what Paul gives you next is brilliant. It is a brilliant explanation of what a ministry looks like that is truly commended by the Lord. Now his pivot into this is going to be verse 11, which we just looked at, and verse 12. So what is the evidence that we can consider that Paul is a minister who has the commendation of the Lord? And he's going to do it by looking at the convictions of the false apostles and turning them on his head. So look at with me at verse 12. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. Now, Paul uses two terms classify. Classify is a Greek word that means to compare within a group. So if you're in the military, you compare yourself with other soldiers. If you're a mom, you compare yourself with other moms. If you're in baking, you compare yourself with other bakers. So the ground of their boasting, the ground of their evaluation comes from people who are like them. But then Paul uses another term, compare. Now compare has to do with comparisons that are outside things that are Uh, like themselves. So if I'm single, I'm looking at the married. If I'm looking at my line of work in baking, I'm looking at the engineers. And Paul is going to say both internal and external comparison is an incredible danger to be able to evaluate whether or not a ministry is of the Lord or not. I can tell you, as an inherently corrupt comparison freak on the inside, that comparison and competition will never lead you to peace. If you continue to evaluate yourselves against the standard of other moms, you will never find peace. If you continue to evaluate yourself based on the people who do the work that you do, you will never come to a place of peace and certainty. If you are always looking at grass is greener scenarios where you're a baker and you wish you weren't a baker because you would like to be an engineer, or you would like to run a Ferris wheel, or you would like to whatever your dream is, you will never find peace if the internal conversations in your heart are always comparison. So Paul begins by saying, true apostles don't classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. I'm not going to fight that battle. You claim to be of Christ, I claim to be of Christ, but we're not going to go back and forth on our resumes. We're not going to compare medals. But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are what? They're without understanding. They're thinking about their qualifications wrong. Now, why would this matter for an apostle? Do you remember Paul's previous life that he talks about in the book of Philippians? Where he talks about, I was was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was trained in the best schools. As to zeal for law-based righteousness, there was nobody like me. And all of Paul's previous life had to do with his comparison with other people. Do you ever compare yourself with other people? Don't you hate that? Don't you hate how angry it makes you? How bitter it makes you? How it doesn't produce any kind of spiritual fruit in your life that, that results in joy and contentment and peace and self-control? It just makes me angry and want to work harder to prove myself. And Paul says, I'm not going to play that game. So that the Lord's apostles, remember what Paul says in Philippians 3, I considered all of these previous things to be garbage compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have, I have experienced the loss of all things. Okay, Paul, so what is the ground? If we're not going to compare ourselves with other people, how in the world are you going to look at Paul and say he has a valid ministry? How in the world is Paul going to have authority in the lives of the Corinthian church if he doesn't have a resume? So if that's not the way to measure, what's the appropriate way to measure an apostle? And therefore, what's the standard? Verse 13. But we will not boast. Here's what the other false apostles are doing. The false apostles compare themselves with other people. They classify themselves with other people. They say, I'm a great apostle because I'm clearly better than, in this context, it's amazing. The false apostles say, we're clearly better than Paul. Why? Because he's not that tall. He's a little bit short. He can't run the forty. He can't bench press that well. He kind of stumbles over his words. He's not an impressive individual to listen to or even to look at. Who is? We are. We're great to look at. We have fantastic rhetorical flourishes. We've got an impressive ministry. We have an incredible platform where many other churches have experienced the blessing of us being in their midst and teaching them the truths about God and who he is. Now watch this. Verse 13. We won't boast... Beyond limits What are the false apostles doing? Remember The false apostles are coming into a church That's been established by Paul Where spiritual fruit has happened Where a people of God have been established It's been a beachhead in the Corinthian culture And Paul Has seen this church established And now the false apostles come in And they say This is our ministry now Imagine for a second Fellas If you're married, imagine for a second that somebody starts to show up in your house and take responsibility for discipling your kids. And that individual starts to take your wife on dates. And that individual starts to set up a cot in your bedroom. And that individual starts to use your bathroom. You would be scratching your head going, wait a minute, this is my wife, these are my kids. This is my house. This authority that I have been given to lead and to love and to serve this family and this woman and this place are the limits that God has assigned to me. Now, what's happening in the Corinthian church? Paul has worked. Paul has served. Paul has planted. Paul has reaped a spiritual fruit. And now, these false apostles come in and say, ah, we can use some of this, our influence in this new place. And Paul says, watch this, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, refuses to go beyond the limits that God has assigned him. So if God has given him authority not to tear down, but not to build up, Paul has also been given, watch this, look at the next part of verse 13. We won't boast beyond limits, but we will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us. I mean, I don't know what your view of apostles are, That they were kind of like Wild West gunslingers in the ancient Near East who would just roll into places, preach, revival, and break out. But Paul shows this that even as a capital A apostle of Jesus Christ, he has an area of influence that has limits. Isn't that amazing? Even as an apostle of Jesus Christ, Paul recognizes that the ministry God has given him has borders. And for him to be an apostle that is recognized by Jesus Christ, commended by the Lord, requires him to be humble in his lane. I don't get to go into somebody else's lane. This is the lane that I've been given. I'm not looking for impact in other churches. I'm looking for impact in this church because this is the field that God has assigned to me. This is where God has called me to be. Does Paul believe in God's sovereign placement of who he is and where he is? He does. And he humbly acknowledges that he has limits. You know, one of the problems, let me rant on social media for just a minute because that's needed right now. One of the problems with social media and our investment of our time and energy and mental occupation with social media is to make us feel like we are responsible for other people and other places. Now, we've just prayed for other people in other places, didn't we? We just asked God to do something to raise up workers to go into a place to take the gospel to the people of Niger. But one of the things we see here For Paul, is that Paul doesn't just breeze into a church and breeze out. Paul invests in a people, in a time, and in a place for a particular season. And Paul willingly and humbly says, I don't need to be everywhere, but I've got to be here. I've got to be invested here. So, we won't boast beyond limits. We'll only boast with regard to the area of influence that God has assigned to us to reach even to you for the corinthian church to critique the apostle paul who began ministry in their midst by preaching the gospel is for this church to saw off the proverbial limb on which they sit it's to cut themselves off from the very person who brought them the gospel that's why second corinthians 5 is so important for paul says be reconciled to god This message, this apostle, this saving faith message of Jesus Christ crucified for you is the only thing that reconciles you to God. Don't cut yourself off from your spiritual forefathers. Don't cut yourself off from the spiritual source and the doctrine that saves you. To reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. Which also requires humility for Paul to say. Humility is not just saying, well, oh shucks, God doesn't do anything through me. I don't know. To God be the glory. No, humility takes clear, sober-minded assessment of who you are and where you are and the authority and the ability and the responsibility that God has given you for this time and place. And then Paul says, I've reached even to you guys. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. That's how the church started. Why wouldn't I have authority to build up? God has given me both authority and an area of influence among you. Verse 15. We don't boast beyond limit in the labors of others. Do you see how many times, he's mentioned this three times. Beyond limits, overextending, beyond limits. What is the, what are the words that are coming out of the false apostles mouth? Our ministry is bigger and greater, bigger and greater. More impact, more extending, more boasting, more expansive. We have more responsibility, more authority, and more places than we really do. We won't boast beyond limit in the labors of others, which tells you they're taking responsibility. They're taking ownership. They're trying to take those stolen valor medals that Paul has and pin them on their own lapel. But if you think Paul's humility means resignation, you are wrong. If you think Paul's awareness of both his authority to build up and the area of influence that God has assigned him, if you think that Paul looks at that and goes, this is all I'm gonna do, because this is all God has given me, then you misunderstand the heart of the apostle. Paul had ambition. He didn't just have authority. He didn't just have an area of influence, he also had an ambition. We don't boast beyond limits in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be what? Greatly enlarged. What does God want to do in the life of the Corinthian church? He wants to make them deeper. He wants them to take every thought captive. He wants them to present hearts that are fully devoted to Jesus Christ. And his prayer, as he wars for the hearts of this church is that these people might not see Paul saying, I'm fighting for a platform. But Paul is hoping that this church might grow and that their faith in Jesus Christ and who he is might be greatly enlarged so that Paul, as the New Testament apostle, the one who writes the very word of God that sits in our hands, that that truth might take root in the life of the church and that church and in the influence of the word might grow and expand and be greatly enlarged in their church. What do we want for you? We said this last week. What do we want for you as you take your next step with Jesus? We want the word of God to dwell richly in you. What do we want to happen in your life? We want the word of God to dwell richly in you. We want your faith to be so stoked as a result of being at Citadel Square that the influence and impact of the spirit of God through the word of God because of what the son of God has done for you would be expanded So that the gospel might take up residence in every area of life. And this is what Paul says. This is what I want for this church. Do you see Paul's ambition? More of the spirit in this church. More devotion to Christ. More knowledge of the doctrine of God. More growth. But there's a purpose to that growth. We used to make this joke when we ran our membership classes that if we only exist for ourselves and you come to join this church, we can keep all the doors locked all the time and we can just give you a key and we can only let members in. And I said, that's not the heart of the church. That's not the heart of Paul the Apostle. That's not the heart of any New Testament church because on the other side of a church growing, on the other side of Paul taking responsibility for the area of influence, the authority he has to build up, comes a spiritual ambition for God to do something more than just in the people. It comes the spiritual ambition for God to do something through the people. Look at verse 16. Here's the so that. Why in the world would Paul invest so much of his heart and authority in the area of influence that he's given to these people? So that, verse 16, we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you. Amen? so that we might be able to leave in our wake healthy, strong, vibrant, Jesus-loving churches so that we might go on and take the gospel forward. So that when Paul had ambition to reach Spain in his ministry, he never stopped. Did he have an authority over an area of influence and responsibility that God had given him? Of course. Did he stop dreaming? Never. He continued to ask God more, God further. Don't let me neglect the responsibility and authority that I have, but God, would you continue to pull us out into new places where we might plant the gospel in the hearts and minds of people so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Paul says we go spiritually deep so that we would have spiritual reach. We're a strong church that we might send out men and women to reach into new places, to new careers, to new cities, to new countries with the truth of the gospel. So here are your metrics so far in the apostle's life. You with me so far? That he's been given authority by Jesus Christ himself to tear down? Nope. To build up. He's been given an area of influence. In which he operates with the responsibility and the accountability that God has given them. He's not going to take responsibility for somebody else else's field. He's not going to boast beyond what God has done in them. But he also has a spiritual ambition that the gospel might continue to go forward, the gospel might reach into new places. And all of that is summarized in what Paul says in verse 17. "Let him who boasts, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. What's the boast of the false apostles? Our reputation, somebody else's ministry field, authority that we don't really have. They compare themselves to Paul and say, We're better by our standards. And Paul says, Whoa. Nobody gets to boast of what God is doing unless they boast in the Lord. Do you see how Paul continues to be profoundly humble? What is the validation of Paul's ministry? The validation of Paul's ministry is that this church exists. That God has, by his grace, chosen to do something through a humble individual to create fruit that lasts. So that Paul's boast in his apostolic calling is not look at me, not look at others, but look what God is doing. Look at what God is doing in this place. Let me say, if If spiritual humility exists in our hearts, what it creates is a profound thankfulness for any kind of spiritual fruit that is happening. It points our hearts away from ourselves. Because we all, listen, we all do this. We all have a tendency to go, how am I doing? And we have our metrics. And we go, good, good, about a seven, maybe a four, I can get better in that one. But I'm doing pretty good than that guy. And by the end of Paul's, talking about his apostleship, he is able to say, look at what God is doing in this church. Isn't this amazing? This is fantastic. Look at their giving, look at their rebuking, They're disciplining that guy. Look at what's happening in the spiritual fruit that God is doing. And it leaves Paul as the leader and the apostle profoundly thankful and excited, not about others, not about the general metrics he has and how good he feels or bad he feels about the church, but he's so thrilled that God is doing something. And he says, gosh, I'm so excited. Let's boast not in these other human metrics. Let's boast that God is doing something in this church. Which brings us to the second point. All of this comparison must lead ultimately to a commendation, which is Paul's explanation in verse 18. For it's not the one who commends himself who's approved. Do you believe with that? I believe with that. Let me try that again. Do you believe that? Do you recognize that we all face temptations? We all live in the waters of self justification all the time, don't we? We all look at am I doing good or am I doing bad? In my relative expectations of who I am and this stage of life and how much money I ought to be making, how obedient my kids are, where my career is, and whether or not I'm kind or whether or not I have influence at work or whether or not I have authority that I'm expected to have at this point in this season of life, how am I doing? And the only, we all do this, we all live in this life where we're trying to justify our existence somehow to say, see, I'm worth it. See, I've proved it. See, I've fought the battle and I've won. See, I've got the medals to prove it. And Paul says, I don't play that game. They're without understanding. For it's not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Remember what he says in in chapter three? He says, you are our letter. What does that mean? Except Paul cannot take responsibility for the fruit that God has done in him and through him. You're you're our letter, written by the Spirit of God on human hearts. Look around. Look at what is before your eyes. Look at what God has done among you. Look at the spiritual fruit that he has accomplished in your life. Look at the spiritual peace that you have because you've repented of your sins and laid hold of Jesus Christ. Look at what has happened. Look at the things of the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the comfort, the kindness, the gentleness, the self-control that God is working in you. And I don't take credit for that. Paul says, I won't take credit for that. I boast in the Lord. Now, let me apply this with three big ideas. You with me so far? You all right? I want to I apply this personally to you and I want to apply it corporately to us. Because this Text arrested me about six months ago as I read it. I had to share it with the elders. I said, There is no other way for us to evaluate our ministry than by what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10 11 through 18. So let me talk to you personally just for a minute. What do we see in Paul's life if not a profound humility? Even as someone who met Jesus on the Damascus road, When Paul shares his testimony before Felix, he says, uh, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. When Jesus tells Ananias, who goes and lays hand on the blind apostle Paul, he tells Ananias, I will show this man how much he will suffer for my sake. When John the Baptist comes to the end of his ministry, And all of these people are leaving his ministry of repentance and moving now to be baptized by Jesus and his disciples. John says this. He says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. So are you humble? Have you humbled yourself beneath the mighty hand of God to recognize your limits geographically your limits socially because when god puts us in a time and in a place you're here today at 11:05 which means you are not elsewhere you with me so far you see that you have chosen to spend time with a particular group of people in a particular time and in a particular place because you are not omnipresent and to acknowledge that you are not omnipresent and omni-responsible is actually a profound statement of humility. To recognize that I have an area of influence. Number two is responsibility. So while we recognize, as Paul all through this passage recognized, that anyone who boasts should boast in the Lord because any spiritual fruit that happens is a result of what God is doing in him and through him doesn't mean that we don't have a responsibility in a particular time and place. God is never going to judge you and hold you accountable for somebody else's responsibilities. You are limited. You're limited in time and in place and geography and in resources. And all you have is that time and place and resources. But you also have responsibility for those men who are fathers, you have a responsibility to your spouse. You have a responsibility for your kids. God has put you in that time in that place with those opportunities that he will hold you accountable for. Women who are married, you have a responsibility to be the wife that God calls you to be, to be the mother that God calls you to be. That no matter how much you want to chafe under the way life is going at this point, you have a spiritual responsibility that God will hold you accountable for. God put those kids in your family at this time and place, and you've got moments to steward so that those kids might be discipled and disciplined and trained in the knowledge of the Lord. If you're a student, you have friends and opportunities and classmates where you have an area of influence and it is your responsibility as a Christian to steward those opportunities well. Do I need to keep going and give more examples? You with me? If you work and you are a boss with employees, you have an opportunity to steward the influence and the responsibility and the authority that God has given you as a Christian to steward those moments well. Don't spend your time thinking about primarily other times, other places, other people. Don't overextend yourself, but at the same time, don't shrink back from the responsibility and the authority and the accountability that God has given you for your time and your space in life. Are you with me? Humility, responsibility. Number three is commendation. This whole passage is about what the Lord approves, right? If you spend time, commentators, note, if you want to spend some time reading about this more, read Jeremiah chapter 9, where God tells Jeremiah, let him who boasts boast in this, that he knows and understands me. Is the ambition of your life to steward with humble faithfulness the responsibilities and the authorities and the area of influence that God has given you, with an ambition to please him, At the end of Jesus' ministry life, he tells a story of the parable of the talents. The parable of talents, he gives a guy ten, gives a guy five, gives a guy one. And when he calls them to account for how they've spent the talent, uh, the weight, the money that he's given them, he never compares them with one another. He only holds them accountable for what he's put in their hands. And he compares them to his expectations for them. But number two, one of the things that this par- that parable shows us about stewarding our time, our opportunities, the influence that God has given us, the authority that we have at any certain time in life is that you've got to go out with what God has given you and you've got to do business, which is the whole point of the parable. You've got to take a risk. You've got to get out there. You've got to use the influence that God has given you. And by extension of what we see in the Apostle Paul's life, you are called with the moments that God has given you, the opportunities that God has given you to steward, to make a spiritual impact in those places. You know, two or three weeks ago, we had over 560 people on campus in our church. And as I thought about this passage, I thought about how many places God is sending our church members into to be able to have an impact, not to tear down, but to build up. To take responsibility for the people that God has put in their life, to have a spiritual impact on them. To step back and go, God, it's not my area of uh, influence, it's not my metrics of human achievement, it's not my spiritual gifting, but God, would you do something that brings you glory, and God, I'm gonna use all that you have given me that the gospel might go forward. So here, here we are, as we close here. Let me talk about us corporately. God has established the people of God at Citadel Square in the 29403 zip code, amen? That's where we are. God has put us downtown with neighbors with the Central Park of Charleston outside. We have institutional neighbors. We have relational neighbors. We have proximity to colleges, to businesses, to educational centers, to MUSC. God hasn't put us somewhere else. He's put us here. He hasn't given us another area of influence. He's given us here. And as the elders of this congregation, our ambition is to reach and teach and steward the opportunities God has given us in this time and in this place for the good of our neighbors, for the good of the people who are here and near to us. I've met with pastors throughout this city who have different groups of people, who do ministry in different kinds of places, who have different challenges in the congregation. So what we're going to do is not shrink back from the opportunity and the area of influence God has assigned to us. Because I believe God wants to do something in your life as a result of you being plugged in and connected to this church that he will continue to do throughout the course of your life as you move on to new places with new people and new areas of responsibility. I don't know how long we got you. I don't know if you're here for three months, if you're here for three years, if you're here for 30 years, if we're gonna bury you. But our responsibility is to steward the people of God well, that we might watch spiritual warfare be won in our midst, that we might experience spiritual victories as a result of our faithfulness of stewarding our responsibilities and our opportunities here. Because what we're aiming at, church, is not comparing ourselves to other churches. We're not aiming at, a big ministry we're not aiming at being well known necessarily what we're aiming at is spiritual depth for spiritual reach because you won't go far unless you go deep we can't extend our reach into other places without God doing something in you individuals in this room first So our ambition and our desire is for God to do more, to send out more missionaries, to send out more church planners, to send out men and women who are trained and equipped with the word of God to make an impact in their culture, in their time, and in their place, in their area of influence. And we're going to do all we can here so that like the parable of the talents, at the end of our ministry journey together, when somebody else stands in this pulpit, and leaders are raised up, and churches are planted, we might hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, we pause to boast in the Lord, to say that any spiritual fruit that has been accomplished here is not a result of our gifting or our abilities. Father, we refuse to compare ourselves We refuse to be men and women without understanding. And I pray for every person in this room that they would have spiritual courage to steward the opportunities and the areas of influence that they have. Father, we pray for us as a church that you would make us a people humbly faithful who desire your glory above all else. For those in this room, Father, who feel the temptation to compare themselves with others, I pray that they would hear the message of Jesus Christ. That they would know their sins are forgiven and they stand fully forgiven and free because of what Jesus has done for them. And that's their hope. That's their boast. That's their confidence. Not that we present you lives that are somehow put together and cleaned up. But that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, Christ died for us. While we could not raise ourselves and cleanse ourselves, Christ came to us, found us, and forgave us. So, Father, may that be the boast of this place. With the aroma of Christ and spiritual victory as we long for your word to take root in our hearts and to have a greater influence in our lives, would you do that by your grace, through your spirit? through men and women who take responsibility for this church and that you would get the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.